Welcome to a special edition of Profiles. I'm James Gray. This hour, we're going to do something a little bit different. Typically on Profiles, we introduce you to notable people from the community or visitors from around the world. We will still be doing that, but through the eyes of a visiting workshop. That workshop is called the Transom Workshop. And in this hour, we will discuss pieces produced during this radio workshop that was held here in Bloomington. The special workshop was led by one of the premier audio instructors in the industry. His name is Rob Rosenthal. I think it's important to share these pieces with you. We'll hear a piece about a businessman that is absolutely in love with his baby water buffalo. We'll hear a story about a couple that keeps rhythm professionally. There's also the story of David Davis, a colorful plumber that feels like a superman. We'll also be discussing how these stories were made and allowing you to hear some of the surprises that were discovered in the process. That's today on the Special Profiles. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm James Gray. This hour, we'll be listening to a few pieces from the Transom Workshop that was hosted here in Bloomington, Indiana. For those of you unfamiliar with Transom, it's possibly the go-to resource for audio storytellers and radio producers. It's a website, it's a podcast, and of course, it's a workshop. I first stumbled on the Transom.org about seven years ago. It's the place to go if you're interested in reading 20-page manifestos from people like Ira Glass and the Kitchen Sisters. I check the website every day to read articles, and I constantly find it changing and refining the way I think about producing audio. The Transom Workshop is the live, in-your-face version of this. Rob Rosenthal is like a doctor when he talks about radio. He knows just where to cut to make things feel better. And what's more, he does it in a way that you don't notice anything is missing afterwards. Rob produces a podcast called How Sound. This means he talks to people like Scott Carrier and David Green about their technique. Then he works directly with his class to improve their pieces. Rob sat down with the 10 of us and the assistant instructor, IU lecturer, American student radio leader, Sarah Neal Estes. We spent one week working sun up to sundown to produce stories, and Rob took us from pitching to posting, from idea to product. We'll visit this process soon, but first, let's start off by hearing one of the pieces. The first piece comes from Yael Cassander. One time, back in the 60s, when David Davis was a kid, he was helping his dad pump out the septic tank under a shack in Kokomo. I got about halfway around, the dirt ledge gave way, and I fell right into the hole. Ah, with my mouth open. And I stood back up, and my dad's there by the vent hole, and he he hands me his T-shirt. He says, here, wipe yourself off. And then he hands me a cup of coffee, and he says, here, wash your mouth out. And he goes, you're in it now. Might as well suck her on out. It was David's unofficial baptism into the trade he'd known since birth. I guess my first ride in a sewer truck was in diapers with my dad. I was running tools when I was eight. You know, go get me a crescent wrench, go get me a pipe wrench. I started driving a septic tank truck before I even had a driver's permit. This work was a family tradition. Before World War II, his Uncle David had been a honey dipper, emptying outhouses by bucket. Uncle David bought a septic tank pumper with his combat pay and hit the road as the original David sewer cleaners. Him and my dad traveled around from Indiana to Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, just did a big circle. And back then, when the septic tank truck came to town, you got your tank pumped. 
Because if you didn't, you don't know when the next guy's going to be around. The entrepreneurial spirit caught on. Pretty much my whole family at one time or another has been in the business, either with my uncle or with Rotorooter franchises or whatnot. For a kid, though, the family business was not a source of pride. You know how kids are in school. You know, the bus pulls up in front of my house and sees the Rotorooter trucks out there. And I got made fun of and called the head skin diver for Rotorooter and all that, you know. Turd chasers, and they call me that too, turd herder. When David was 18, he took off. He spent 10 years in the Navy, 10 years in Alaska, and another eight working construction all over the country, and occasionally cleaning sewers. He was in Georgia in 2001. And I'd been laid off for the winter, and my sister called me from Bloomington and said, Ann Opal's in trouble. Her whole crew walked out on Friday night. So I called Ann Opal up on Saturday morning, and I said, if you want, I'll come back and train a new crew. I said, I'm only going to stay for three months. I'm not cutting my hair. I'm not wearing a uniform. And I won't take less than 500 cash <laughs> every week. And uh, she said, okay. Three months turned into three years. David decided to stay in Bloomington and start his own business. I found out it wasn't the sewer work I hated. It was working for family. Take Dad, for example. He was a rough guy. He was an alcoholic. He beat me, and, and he had his own problems. So I just stayed away from him. David had been estranged from his father since the 70s. Then, in 2006, David's mother passed away. He couldn't afford to attend her funeral in Alaska. The day after she died, he got a call from a local church. Their plumbing had backed up. So I went out there, and maintenance guy was a good old boy in coveralls and everything, country church, and I sat there and visited with him. I didn't tell him about my mom dying or anything, but he handed me a welcome bag. And he said, if you're not doing nothing, somebody come worship with us. After all the churches I worked in this town, not one of them had ever invited me. David took him up on the invitation. Returning week after week, he renewed his faith and reconnected with his family. Within a month, he was sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner with his father. I spent the last year and a half with my dad. I built the coffin that he was buried in. He's buried right over here at Vahela. And after he died, my stepmom decided she didn't want to be buried with him. She wanted to be buried with her children. So I bought the other half of the mausoleum. Now the man I wouldn't talk to for 30 years, I'm going to be buried with. For the time being, life is good, like the sticker says on the back of his van. This is the best my life has ever been. You know, it took me so long to get here, but I'm glad I've arrived. David, who's turning 60 in November, has not only embraced God and his family, but the family business. He gets more jobs than he can accept and has a sense of humor about the work. He displays the random objects he pulls out of pipes as trophies on a wall at home. I call it my wall of shame. And I've got cell phones, screwdrivers, toothbrushes, pens, pencils, uh, remote controls. The pride David derives from his work, though, is no joke. I get paid to be a superhero. It's a long time since anyone's made fun of David for his line of work. Quite the contrary. I had one woman standing on her front porch. She's got one kid hanging on her leg, another kid on her waist. They were out in the country, and they'd been backed up, going in buckets for a week and a half. And I got there in 15, 20 minutes. Problem's gone. There you go. Have a good day, you know. And they're all sitting there waving at me, saying, we love you. And that's what I get to do all day long, go around town and make people happy. In Bloomington, I'm Yael Cassander, reporting for WFIU. That was Just When You Think Your Life Is in the Sewer by Yael Cassander. She made that piece for the Transom Workshop when it was here in Indiana. Yael joins us in the studio now. Welcome, Yael. 
Hi, James. Where did you find David, and why did you choose to have him be the subject for your story? I met David through my brother, who's a contractor. My brother works with all kinds of interesting people, so I had my pick. I had met David on a job one time when I was visiting my brother, and I could tell that though he was cleaning sewers, he had a whole lot more going on. This is a guy who I think is a natural extrovert, definitely a raconteur, where he has to tell a story almost to exist. I could also tell that he had a lot of conflict going on. I could tell that there was a lot in his past that he was trying to come to terms with. So I could see that there was a real story there. Most of the time, I interview authors, musicians, painters, and other people in the creative arts. So I don't often have the opportunity to interview someone who cleans sewers for a living. So when this opportunity presented itself, I jumped on it. Everything he says contains so much character. How do you know what to keep and what to cut? Everything that David says is said in his inimitable vernacular. I can't talk like that. No one can talk like that. Only David can talk like that. So these sentences come out of his mouth and they are brilliant. I mean, it's really a case of truth being better than fiction. So that was brilliant. He made for some great sound bites. That first story about falling into the sewer hole was amazing. But at the same time, it also made it extremely hard to edit, as you pointed out. I had to cut out quite a bit, and every sentence of his that I had to cut felt like a great loss. Was there anything specifically that you were wanting to keep in that you couldn't? Yeah, I got to tour his so-called wall of shame, which is in and of itself the most amazing thing. Here's a guy who really does have a great sense of humor about his work. In his home, he has little shelves with all of these objects that he's fished out of sewer pipes, displayed and labeled with little plaques. So honestly, I wanted to make a movie about this particular part of his life. I, I could have made the whole piece about that wall of shame and his narration of it, but I had to limit it to a very small part of the piece. Oof. So that was, that was probably the hardest thing to cut. I limited what was actually about a 20-minute excursus into one line. What were some of the items on the wall? You wouldn't believe it. There was one pipe that he said came from an old man who smoked in the bathroom because his wife wouldn't let him smoke otherwise. Like a smoking pipe. An old classic pipe. He told me the story about that one. He said, yeah, the old guy was smoking in the bathroom and his wife came and knocked on the door and he didn't want to get busted, so he threw it down the toilet. Was there anything that the Transform Workshop revealed to you about how you tell your stories that maybe you weren't aware of? It was extremely instructive. Uh, for me, a big help was in the writing. You know, I'm trained as an academic, so the writing that I've been trained to do and that I'm used to doing is expository prose, where I'm going to be writing a paragraph to present the ideas I'm going to present, and then the quotations that I use, the examples, are going to back up that original statement. That's not the way quotes or actualities work in radio. 
However, I was, I think, prior to this using them in that way. So what we learned in the transom workshop was that quotes really need to move your story forward, the actualities, the things we're hearing from the people, not back up what you've already said. So it was a really different form of writing that I was introduced to in the workshop and one that I think is really going to help me craft better stories. Do you think there's anything that would surprise a listener about making your specific piece? Well, sure. I mean, to be a radio reporter, you have to be a little bit intrepid and you definitely have to be very nosy. And you have to be somewhat aggressive about getting the answers you want. So as far as intrepid, I'm talking about going to places that you normally wouldn't. With David Davis on this story, I, first of all, met him uh, at his house, which is a trailer over on the west side. I'd never been to this particular locale. You get to know people. You see their stuff. You meet their wives and their animals and all kinds of other things. You get into their lives. So that's... Something that's interesting, also I went on the job with him. So I went to a student apartment that the landlord had called in about. So I went to that place and saw all the grungy stuff at this particular downtown student apartment and interacted with the residents of that place. I smelled the stuff in the back of his van, you know. It's not pretty work, but someone's got to do it. Thanks, Yale. I hope you'll stay with me to discuss more of the pieces from the workshop. It'll be fun to listen to what we're talking about, about the quotes, pushing the story forward. I'll keep my ears open for that as we listen to more pieces. Absolutely. You're listening to a special edition of Profiles. We're listening to pieces created during the Transom Workshop that took place here in Indiana. We'll be discussing those pieces as well. I'm James Gray. James Gray with Yael Cassander. We're playing some radio features from the Transom Workshop that took place in Bloomington, Indiana, and we'll be discussing those pieces as well. James, the workshop was such a whirlwind. It was, at the same time, almost the longest week and the shortest week. We were working from morning till late at night, learning everything from proper microphone handling to crafting our stories and delivering them. So it was a great week in great company, I should add, not only the IU people who were there, but a rather diverse crowd, people who came from California, from Cincinnati, and people of all ages. So I think the mix of backgrounds really added to the camaraderie of the group and the learning that we did. I think a good example is Mike Brown. He's from Cincinnati, Ohio. Like you said, he did a piece about a limestone carver named Ned Cunningham. He captured something that feels characteristic of South Central Indiana and the relationship that a lot of people have to limestone, the way limestone can connect us with heritage and family. We'll listen to Mike's piece and 
I want you to listen extra close for the sound of the pneumatic chisel. I don't think you can miss it. Here's Mike Brown's feature on Ned Cunningham. Ned Cunningham likes his job at Bybee Stone. Ned likes it a lot, actually. He carves limestone into architectural features. Think of a life-size statue, St. Peter, for instance, or classical columns with elaborate crowns. His work lives on state capitol buildings, Harvard University, and the National Cathedral, to name a few. But every day Ned arrives at Bybee, his heart is elsewhere. He'd rather be following his passion, his art, sculpting in marble. Ned says it was love at first strike. It's the feel of the stone when, you, when you're carving it. It's, uh, it's almost an erotic feeling. of Ned sculpts uh, with a hammer and chisel so he can work at the speed of the stone. No power tools. And he prefers difficult stones like marble, stones that surprise and cause problems with their hidden cracks. You do have to be fearless to carve stone. That's part of the subtractive process. He likes dark marbles. His favorite is pendelic red. It looks like fresh liver. Has a you know, it's rock face nature. It looks like, but then it, uh, when you when you carve into it, it's a beautiful rosy pink for your tool mark. So you know th- those kind of combinations are far more interesting because I leave tool marks. I think the handwriting and the sculptor is what's the most beautiful thing about a carving. Ned sculpts figures. The content is often religious. But more than form or content, he wants to evoke emotion. I think they come through in all my work because that's really what I'm after more than pretty. I'm not interested in pretty. Crucifixion, which is one of my favorite pieces, the Christ, the Christ is looking at the viewer with a certain disappointment. Ned is 61, tall and lanky. He ties his long gray hair in a ponytail and tucks it under his hard hat. Twenty-five years ago, he was married with two children. A third was on the way. The family needs were greater than the earnings of a sculptor in Bloomington. He considered the limestone mills, which employed his father and brother and his grandfather before them. I never dreamed I'd work in a stone mill. I was the hippie artist. But he went to Bybee for a job. I applied as a carver, and he sort of chuckled. Because everybody begins at the bottom of the ladder in the, in the stone industry. He crowed to his co-workers about being a sculptor. They assured him that he would soon be cured of that affliction. They were right, and at the end of a workday, he was too tired to sculpt. But he eventually became a carver. Well, a carver is uh, generally mechanically duplicates something else. A carver doesn't need to express himself. That's not part of the job. Not in the in the job description at all. It's just simply to be able to move the material at will. The tranquil quiet of his small studio was gone, replaced by the chaos of a large fabrication plant, all fifty thousand square feet of it. The air is choked with limestone dust. Train moves overhead. I mean, limestone, you can impose your will on it so easily. But the biggest difference was the tools. The clink-clink of a hand chisel was gone, replaced by the gnawing sound of pneumatic chisels chewing the limestone membrane. Pneumatic saws, sanders, and drills compete with the chisel. In the back of the mill, near the Civil War-era stone planers, 
is a row of gang saws. They cut large blocks of limestone into slabs. These are not the tools of a sculptor, in communion with his marble, responding to its surprises, delighting in the erotic moments when the chisel strikes just so. Men made the shift from sculptor to carver many years ago. He's fully embraced carving in that time, even though this wasn't his first choice. He is now the master carver at Bybee Stone. He supervises journeymen and apprentice carvers. The work is handsome. It is featured in prestigious buildings across the country. It represents a legacy to be proud of. Still, Ned's grateful there's room for artistic expression. We'll get a lot of jobs where they just say, I want an arch here and I want floral floral work in the in the in the arch. In lower relief, they might say an inch relief, and that's all I want. Well, I'm kind of a you know, I'm kind of on my own to design that and, and uh, so yes, not every job's that way. Sometimes they want things exact, but we're we're respected to the point where they give me artistic license, which is in the contracts. <laughs> that was Mike Brown's piece on Ned Cunningham. He produced it for the Chansom Workshop here in Indiana. I'm James Gray. And I'm Yael Cassander. Mike is an interesting guy. He worked as an airport consultant for years. Recently, he retired and he decided he wanted to go into recording documentaries. The workshop was a step in that direction for him. Yael, what jumped out to you about Mike's piece? I think that is a universal story, and it's a perfect example of the fact that these stories are very specific about particular people, but when they're really powerful, it's because they do speak to the universal condition. I was also really interested in Mike's use of sound. Mike had talked all week about the pneumatic drill, but when you hear it, there's this immediacy to it. It's like a rock and roll song. That pneumatic chisel was something else. Also the gang saw and the way that Mike took us from place to place by use of sound. I think that speaks to Mike's ability to write. During the week, we broke into two groups. And, yeah, you and I were in the same group, so we didn't get to hear much of Mike's rewriting. And it almost felt like something magic happened in between the first draft that he presented to the group and that final draft that we just listened to. I want to know what happened during that process, and luckily we have someone on the staff that can answer that question. Annie Corrigan is here. She was in Mike's group, so Annie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Hi, guys. Hi, Annie. Hi, Annie. So what happened in your group? I think the best way to describe it is the magic that is Rob Rosenthal. (laughs) (laughs) So we went really back to basic stuff in our group. We talked about what makes a good story. And instead of, you know, staring at all these pieces of paper that we have and looking at our computer screens and getting all of our notes in order, Rob said, no, just tell me what the story is about. Basic stuff. And it was incredible. People used simple language. They used short sentences. And then, poof, there was the story. And then from that point, the writing just took care of itself. If I can jump in, I thought that in Mike's story, there was some real craft going on there, too, in terms of the visual language that he chose not only to write but to include. The fact that he homed in on images like the stone looking like liver and carving the stone being erotic. The fact that he was using not only his words but Ned's words in that way. 
also toward the end when he talked about the sculptural process as being in communion with this stone, bringing that religious imagery into it. I think that Mike really worked on choosing exactly the right words for his piece. I remember he even had a bit of a fixation on a phrase. That's kind of what the piece was born out of. Ned had said that he works at the speed of the stone. And I remember in the beginning Mike saying, oh, there's something to this phrase. It was kind of neat how it grew out of that. Annie, I think your piece in particular was one of the more interesting rewrites. <laughs> what did you think your piece was going to be about, and how did that change over the week? Yeah, boy, James, you're right. So I went through a real process over these six days. I knew going into the transom workshop that I wanted to speak with a local foodie businessman, Jeff Meese, for people in this area. He owns Lenny's, he owns the Bloomington Brewing Company, and he owns Pizza X. He has his hands in all sorts of foodie things, and he has a farm. Back in the 90s, he helped pass legislation that made it possible to open brew pubs in Indiana. So I met him on his farm to conduct the interview. All the while, I'm thinking this is a story about beer. Well, I soon realized that my story actually wasn't about beer at all, but I had no idea what to do. So when I came back to the class the next day and everyone was talking about the interviews they conducted, I was really adrift. I didn't know what to do. My thoughts were all over the place. But over that day... I listened to all the other students talk through their stories, and my thoughts started to congeal. What was the most compelling part of my morning spent with Jeff Meese? Well, it was this baby water buffalo that followed him around the farm like a puppy, and there it was. So I had my compelling characters, because you guys, this baby water buffalo was the most incredible creature you've ever seen. And I had a why to my story, why water buffalo in southern Indiana. And I learned from Jeff his original plan for these animals fell through. And so there, right there, was my conflict. And now it was just a matter of putting all those pieces in their proper places to get my radio story. So I start with Jeff interacting with the water buffalo, which is one of the very first things we did in the interview when I got to the farm. So, James, this is my action. We're going to think about it like that. So keep an ear out for the structure that I tried to create. It starts with the action. You can remember it like this. It's A, B, D, C, E. Action, background, development, conflict, ending. So let's take a listen. No matter how busy he is, Jeff Meese will always make time for one thing. There you go, sweetie. What's her name? Oh, this is Shadow. Shadow's nine weeks old, and she's an orphan. What? How are you? Uh, how are you? And she's a water buffalo. Do you think she knows her name? I think it's getting there. Jeff has 26 other Asian water buffalo. All of them shunned Shadow when she was born. So now she spends most of her time with humans and the farm dog, Louie. She doesn't even know she's a buffalo, I think, by now. So that we're all on the same page, these animals are not the humpbacked Great Plains American bison. Asian water buffalo pretty much look like cows with a striking set of horns. These horns can either coil like Raleigh Fingers' mustache or jut out like scythe blades. Shadow's horns at this point are just nubbins. You want to do a little walking with us, you? Huh? You can guess by the name that these Asian water buffalo are not native to Indiana. So why did it seem like a good idea to bring these animals to Midwestern America? First, you have to understand what motivates Jeff Meese, food and community. He's a very successful restaurateur. He owns Pizza X, a local pizza delivery chain, Lenny's Restaurant, and the Bloomington Brewing Company. For fun, he runs a farm. 
you know, some people golf, some people love movies. I like to get out here and feel nature and grow stuff, give it away. He grows hops for the brewery. His 80 tomato plants produce all the tomatoes for Lenny's. You see, even Shadow likes tomatoes. <laughs> She's been eating the plants. The plants are supposed to be poisonous. Don't eat too many of those. He also had a vision to make his own cheese, this one specific kind of cheese, buffalo mozzarella. He first experienced it in Italy, where they milk the water buffalo, make the mozzarella, and sell it at the market all on the same day. The mouthfeel and the flavor of it is just exquisite. You know, you you would sit down and eat a, a baseball-sized chunk of this cheese and want more. After it's been refrigerated, then it's considered to have a much lower value and they use it on, like, pizza. That was Jeff's grand plan. Buy nine water buffalo with the intention of milking them for cheese. And then the problems started stacking up. As the herd grew in size, simply raising the animals took a lot of time. He realized his 70-acre plot of land was too small for the number of animals he would need. Not to mention constructing a creamery. That would have been quite an undertaking. So now what? He still wanted to produce something, but instead of cheese, what if the buffalo were the product? I, I realize I can't do it all myself, and so I'm working on finding interested people. He wants to transform his farm into a breeding operation so he can get water buffalo out into this part of the world. He envisions southern Indiana as a national hub for Asian water buffalo. You know, if I've got to give them buffalo, that's what I'll, what I'll do, but sort of almost uh, find a few people that it's free to a good home. Two of his bulls are headed to a farm in Vermont. Any takers locally? Not yet. Come on, Shadow. Keep stepping, girl. Jeff says everyone who meets Shadow falls in love with her a little bit, and I can vouch for that. Right now, she's adorably clumsy at just under 200 pounds. She'll grow to eight times that size when all's said and done. There she comes. So she runs up and butts you, which is going to be no good when you get bigger. So we're not sure just how we're going to deal with that. He has 20 years to figure that out. Oh, good girl. Jeff makes it abundantly clear that Shadow is his favorite because she's like family. Oh, I think once you give him a name, yeah, she is like family. He puts Shadow back in her pen until tomorrow. For WFIU, I'm Annie Corrigan. That was Annie Corrigan's piece on Jeff Meese and Shadow. She produced that for the Transom Workshop that was here in Indiana. Annie, you've told us about restructuring your piece. Is there anything else that surprised you about making this story? Well, water buffalo are very quiet animals. So that was tricky, making a radio (laughs) story. Uh, One of my central characters was actually very quiet. But I think I, I got around that a little bit, I think. How do you feel the piece differed from stories you usually make? Yeah, this felt like a complete departure from what I normally do. So in my life as a normal person, I like structure. I write lists. I have a planner that's very detailed about everything I'm going to do in a day. But for some reason, I never really applied that intense structure to my radio pieces. This was the first time that I thought in terms of narrative flow and structure. Believe it or not, it was freeing as I was producing that story to think about structure. Did you feel like you'd tapped into something from another part of your life? Yeah, I hate to sort of ruin the magic that is radio stories, but (laughs) it almost felt like, okay, now I have a formula. Because I have a formula for living life, writing lists, checking things off my list, writing things down in my planner. 
I can do that with my radio stories as well. And the result is a more compelling story, I think. When you talk about the structure that goes into it, actually, that doesn't diminish the magic. If you're doing your job right with that structure, it enhances the magic for the listener. Because a big thing that we were taught over the course of the workshop was that there's going to be an element of surprise in any good story. And there's going to be an element of suspense. And the degree to which you can keep a a listener interested depends to a great extent on how you manipulate that suspense and that surprise. And so having a bit of a formula about how to do so actually does enhance the listening experience. And I guess the listeners out there, as you're hearing us discuss this, maybe listen for those moments of surprise. Does it change how you interact with a piece of radio, knowing that the structure is what it is? I don't know. Think about that throughout this next half hour. We're going to be listening to a few more pieces, including a piece about a Renaissance man of sorts. Annie, I hope you'll stick around for that. Yeah, you bet. You're listening to a special edition of Profiles. We're listening to pieces created during the Transom Workshop that took place here in Indiana, and we'll be discussing those pieces as well. I'm James Gray with Yael Cassander and Annie Corrigan. James Gray with Gail Cassander and Annie Corrigan. We're playing some radio features from the Transom Workshop that took place in Bloomington, Indiana. We'll be discussing those pieces as well. The next piece we're going to play is from Chris Mawson. Chris is a familiar voice around here. He's currently an intern on the arts team. Here's his piece, His Sculpture is His Journey. I take all this stuff out of the top of it. Nick McGill is a collector. He's a scavenger and a borderline hoarder. He's collected fossils, unusual artifacts, mineral samples, and seeds from all over the world. He says the idea to scavenge started early in life. I remember being a little kid, and I looked at all the trash, and I thought there were little men that would sort out the trash and take out all the usable stuff even then, the cans and the bottles and, you know, stuff like that. I didn't realize it was all just going to the dump. When he's at home in the Midwest, he forages the abandoned factories of the Rust Belt. He's not just collecting it and throwing it in his yard. He's sourcing material for his sculptures. It is like a fossil. A fossil you look at, it might look like a dog turd, really. But really, it's much 
there's much more going on there. You can clean it up. You know, you got to know how to look at it. You got to chip it out of the rock. Nick welds ball bearings, gears, drill bits, and car parts into these gothic industrial candlestick holders, garden trellises, and public installations all around town. What you would do with them? I don't know, but they're really cool. And that's from Otis Elevator. But Nick wasn't always a sculptor. For many years, there was very little metal in his life. He went to college. He studied biology, paleontology, and geology. He did fieldwork in Africa. He even owned a lawn care business. He called it Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade, let me whip your lawn in shape. <laughs> <laughs> then he was arrested for growing some pot in the forest. Like a giant SWAT team descended on me with lethal force, you know, rifles and stuff. And it totally, I mean, it totally freaked me out. I, my life was ruined. I couldn't grow plants anymore. And so I started growing sculptures. So that's when metal came back into his life. He started taking classes at the Waldron Art Center. He eventually became a teaching assistant for the same class, which led to a job on campus. He had unlimited access to the McCullough Building's workshop. His art was good, and it started selling. Well, I did a series of, of the evolution of early sea life, which, um, which was interesting to do out of metal. Like, you know, even a jellyfish. I did a metal jellyfish that I traded a car for. A nice Subaru four-wheel drive. That was pretty cool. That was that was one of my first big successes that I thought, man, I could do this. You know, people are going to trade me a car for a sculpture. And then his reputation as a metal sculptor grew, and in fact, he does very well in Chicago. In his peak, he built seven sculptures a week, and they sell for up to $1,000. But 20 years of sculpting takes its toll. Metal, you have to fight it. It's strong, it's tough, it's dangerous. You have to... Um, impose your will on the metal, or it's going to bite back. And he lost a few fights here and there. The metal bit back. It's just a little harder to get around and do things that you once did, a little more painful, like my back is out. So today he prepares for his last art show in Chicago. It's a hard business. I would never recommend it. It's worked out for me, but I don't have um, expectations of retirement. I don't have a family to support. I don't have health care. But just because he's quitting metal doesn't mean he's done with sculpture. His new mediums, his garden, and his sitar. One is physical sculpture, one is sound sculpture. It's a living sculpture that I mold and shape, but it's also its own, its own creation too, but I can be integrated with that. Now I would rather have um, living plants rather than dead metal. My sculpture is my journey. I don't have a retirement plan. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I, I go gently into the good night. For WFIU Arts, I'm Christopher Mawson. Chris Mawson did that piece about artist Nick McGill. It's called His Sculpture is His Journey. You know, I love stories that make me chuckle, Yael and James. And this story, that just that little throwaway mention of the Marquis de Sade will whip your lawn into shape, still gets me. I still chuckle about that. Also about his piece, it appeals to all my senses. I can feel the metal sculpture. I can see his garden. And then out of nowhere, I get this surprise strum of a sitar. So for me, this piece, it's all about color. His piece kind of took me in unexpected places as well. Not just to speak to the unexpected images, but there was that moment, it seems to me sort of a critical moment, when McGill recounts 
uh, seeing his friend die. And it's a difficult memory, and I would say it's difficult to listen to, but without that, the story wouldn't feel complete. I remember Chris saying that he almost didn't get that part of the story. He was feeling eager during the conversation, maybe a little nervous. And when McGill started talking about that day at the river, Chris interrupted him and tried to change the subject. It was a good thing that McGill kept going. And, you know, as people who conduct interviews all the time as part of our job, this is one of the challenges we deal with. So you go into an interview with someone. You've got this idea of the material you need to collect. You sort of you come in with, like I like, a list and a structure in mind. So it takes discipline and patience to let that other person talk and let them get through an idea. And then also, as you're holding the microphone, you have to keep your ears open and really engage with what they're saying because there could be a little nugget of gold in there that totally changes the story on the other end. So I think it's this balance between structure and yet being malleable enough to change directions with a story if it seems appropriate. You know, Rob talked a lot about being in polite control of the situation. And it is really a very difficult line to toe between guiding the interview and getting the story that you think you are going for, and at the same time being open enough and listening actively enough to hear when there is a real twist in the path and you really need to follow that person down that path. Being able to do both at the same time requires quite a bit of agility, restraint, but at the same time, guidance. I find that to be quite challenging, and it's something that I practice every day. (laughs) Yael, you must face a similar role as the arts editor. I think that in editing stories from their first draft when they first come to me to what listeners hear on the radio... Well, there are a lot of steps along the way that people may not be aware of. One of the things that's the hardest for all of us is to kill those darlings, to get rid of those things that we're just in love with but that aren't moving the story forward at all. Annie mentioned that Marquita Saad line. In the hands of another editor, that may have disappeared because perhaps they didn't see why that was useful to the story. I agree with you. It sort of fleshed out the character of Nick and also gave listeners a chance to take a break, relax, laugh, which is always nice, a little palate changer. But and to me, that makes that story memorable. It's those little nuggets that just surprise you and stick with you throughout the day, maybe weeks after you hear a story. It makes it memorable. In your story, Annie, when the water buffalo nudges Jeff Neese in the back of the legs and you say, it's okay for now, but... In a few months, he's going to be much larger, and that has to stop. Yeah, hopefully we give you these little surprises, and Mm -hmm. the listeners take them with them after they hear the story. Yeah, and hopefully the surprises do just that. They reset you, refresh you, and enhance your sense of the story and the characters, but don't take you too far afield to be utterly tangential and irrelevant. So, again, it's a, a fine line to tread, and I'm sure each editor does it differently. Okay, we have a couple more pieces. We'll hear them in just a moment. One of the things that I thought was really interesting and that the workshop really did help me to think about more was the musicality of the overall piece, even when you have a subject that's not a musical subject. Thinking about making these radio stories as little compositions was a great thing to think about and one that Rob Rosenthal introduced us to. So thinking about, for example, 
how spacious a piece is going to be, the amount of space between comments, sometimes the closeness of the comments and the sense of there being no air in the piece to suggest tension, the alternation between sound and silence and music and ambient sound, and considering all of those things in the larger composition was a wonderful consideration and one that many times under the pressure of deadlines, etc., we don't always have the chance to consider, but definitely an enhancement of our craft, potentially. I think you can definitely hear the composition in Michelle Blackwell's piece. Let's listen to that now. Music, dance, life. For Tamara Lowenthal and Jamie Gans, it's all about the beat. I think that dance often starts with the pulse within. You hear this, and even if you don't hear it because you're not listening to your heart, it is always running in you. Tamara's a percussive dancer. Jamie plays fiddle. It's such a satisfying and rewarding experience, so much that my whole life I put everything aside just so I could keep playing the music. She's dance, he's music. Together they are fiddle and feet, a combination of music and sound. They're working in a bright sunroom attached to their Bloomington, Indiana cottage. Uh, what kind of intro do we just play? Just play it and I'll just... Jamie's playing a tune called Trouble on My Mind. Tamara steps to the downbeat atop a wooden pallet. Her moves are called flat-footing. Think of it as tap dancing with an Appalachian flair. But what's going on here is more than just fiddling and dancing. Jamie and Tamara are married. So this is the sound of a relationship nearly 20 years in the making. It all started with a friend who wanted Jamie to move to Bloomington. He showed him a videotape of Tamara dancing with a group called Rhythm and Shoes. He said, oh, I think you should meet Tamara. There she is. And I said, yeah, I'd move to Bloomington for her. And And you did. But it took a while for the couple to find their groove. Probably in the beginning of our working relationship, I think we had a lot of flare-ups. You know, when I moved here, I remember a friend saying, oh, Jamie, don't, you know, I was moving, this was years ago. I said, I'm going to be living with um, this woman that I'm in love with and working with her. And they, they go, no, it's not going to work. You know, you don't, don't, <laughs> you know. And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm just going to do it, you know. And, um, of course, I learned that it was a lot of work. I'd say every, we work very hard, wouldn't you? I would say so. <laughs> and, and every uh, couple that, um, you know, that has longevity, has said that they they don't just sit on their laurels and and let it happen, you know. Everybody works through the rhythms of their relationship, because there's always going to be some, um, you know, uh, a rhythms, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, hopefully you know those a rhythms that come uh, get in the same groove, 
uh, at least a good portion of the time. They say the hard work has paid off. Today they have a repertoire that includes many forms of traditional dance. The range of what we do together is part of, I think, what keeps us excited. Clogging, flat-footing, Celtic dance, teaching, and even playing fiddle duets. Staying in sync requires ongoing practice. When we do a dance performance, she's the one who is, is, uh, is pretty much the director of the... Uh, but even after 20 years together and 15 years as husband and wife, the duo remains committed to facing new challenges together. You know how, how giving birth is the metaphor for, for the, the, the growth of something and then the actual coming through the channel before. And I feel like that happens pretty regularly with us when we are working on new material. If you have a commitment um, and feel connected. And I would say that, that, you know, our connection is something sometimes we're not even aware of. It is like putting a puzzle together and every time you put the puzzle, you're always glad when all the pieces fit like this. For WFIU, I'm Michelle Blackwell. the thing with Michelle's piece that stuck with me is she came in the very first day saying, all right, I'm going to talk to cloggers. I know I need a lot of rhythm and I know I need a lot of sound. And I think she almost even had that line. It's all about the beat. I think she had that from day one before she even did the interview. I remember her saying that as well. And she kept talking about how she was really interested in creating a piece that sounded musical. She wanted it to have its own rhythm and its own beat to kind of to support this idea that you know, it's all about the beat, like she had said. She really was able to find a little music in a way that surprised me. She had talked about the clogging and the heartbeat and all of these things. And we talked about, should we use a manufactured heartbeat? Not a manufactured heart, but should we use a heartbeat that came from an alternative source? Is that acceptable? Do we use the actual heartbeat of the clogger, of the fiddler? Which one do we use? What do we do? And she presented this collage of noise that she had captured in the field that kind of like that pneumatic chisel, had an immediacy to it. It took, it made you feel like there is something going on here. Well, she got really lucky because Tamara, the clogger, made that heartbeat sound. Maybe she was prompted by Michelle to do so, but when Tamara did that, Michelle said, bingo! I think she had to contain herself from the endorphin rush she was having and managed to turn that into that really nice sound collage that she does at the beginning of the piece. Let's play one more piece. It's from Lacey Scarmana. She works in the news department here, but she's also a member of American Student Radio, the local radio group on campus. She also contributed a great piece to our Arts and Disabilities series that we ran as part of the WFIU Arts Desk during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. The piece she did for the workshop is about a local rug dealer. Let's take a listen to that right now. Nasir Jalal is a one-of-a-kind doctor. I am a doctor of the rugs. <laughs> rugs doctor. Hello, Gary. How are you, my friend? Good to see you. Please put it here. Okay. His first patient of the day arrives. So, Gary, you want to just wash? Nasir doesn't just wash and repair rugs. In his own words, he brings them back to life. 
His first customer wants his rug cleaned. The doctor of rugs gets down on his hands and knees, sniffs the rug, then lifts his head up. No dog and cat. Good. Yeah, I, I don't smell it. Nasir owns Kashan Oriental Rugs. He grew up in Afghanistan, where his father was a doctor in the traditional sense of the word. My dad was a very respected man, very nice man. Too. He was always helping people, the poor. Sometimes they don't have money, but they are sick. My dad was take care of them, even give them his own medicine or pay for his medicine. But Nasir fled to Pakistan when Russia invaded. He couldn't use his economics degree and wanted to move to the U.S. His brother said, you should make things Americans would want to buy. So he learned to weave. I wanted to be my own boss. It's like, this is America. It's the land of opportunity. You, know, you want to be your own boss, your own man. And that's what he did. Light streams into the store. Dust floats in the air and gathers on the floor between piles of intricately woven rugs. As he gives me the tour, he tells me about his family. His daughters range in age between 20 and 2. Here I show you some of the little one picture, actually. She's here with my mom and her cat. She's adorable. Rugs are rolled up in the middle of the store. Others hang on swinging racks that customers can flip through. And the floor is covered with stacks that are more than a foot high. Nasir takes me to one of these and starts flipping through. But this one is from India. This is from Afghanistan. You see? Beautiful. How can you tell where oh, they're from? He's looking at them. It's like, you know, if I know my daughter's name is Mary and the other one is Nadia, it's like this. It's like part of, you know, family and you get so used to it. He no longer weaves, but Nasir has a deep appreciation for the craft. He pays attention to detail, a trait that is valued in both a doctor and a rug man. Every rug has their own character. They, they made in different villages and provinces and places. So every one of them has their own character and their own weave and the, the, the color, the dye, and the, the workmanship is different. He tries to live by his father's example. And like his dad, he's worked for free. Because I feel like, okay, they don't have it and they need it, let's do it. It's just you do that for your own heart. I feel good when I see a rug is kind of dying and I take care of it and I make sure, you know, uh, get back to life. For WFIU, I'm Lacey Scarmana. That was Lacey Scarmana's piece about a local rug dealer. She produced it for the transom workshop that was here in Bloomington, Indiana over the summer. James, I really loved the way that she pulled that metaphor of the doctor all the way through the piece. Sometimes it's easy to come up with a catchy metaphor, some kind of a gimmick at the beginning of a piece and then over the course of production and editing to lose that metaphor. But she really pulled it all the way through. The visuals that she had of him leaning down on the floor and putting his ear to the rug, it brought the scene to life for me. I know that Lacey expressed her apprehension that there wasn't enough conflict in the story. When we were workshopping the piece, there were a lot of suggestions about how we could create uh, more turmoil. This is obviously a very well-adjusted and happy individual. I remember suggesting at some point that we could go into his turbulent past, perhaps growing up in the Middle East and, and things that caused his exile from his homeland. But that just wasn't part of the story. Maybe he chose not to speak about it, or in some way or another, it just didn't figure in. So Lacey 
expressed some anxiety that there wasn't a, enough of a conflict or a struggle. How do you think she resolved that? She has this character that's so interesting and creates all these visuals. You really feel like you're there getting to know him. And sometimes a character like that is refreshing in its own way, just to spend time with someone, feel like you're meeting someone new. I think that that can be a greater challenge from the production side. But I really like ending with her piece because it also it kind of shows a little counter to some of the things that we've learned, you know. If you know enough about how to work a conflict into a story, then you can start to imagine what the story is going to look like without as much conflict. As much as we tried to adhere to that ABDCE structure or the so-and-so is doing something because but structure, we also learned how to work with stories in which there wasn't that kind of conflict available or possible. And just observing a character who's interesting enough is sometimes enough to make an interesting story. Thanks for joining us for this special hour of Profiles. Next week, Profiles will be in its regular format with host Dan Grunman speaking with cartoonist Dave Coverly. Coverly is best known for his syndicated comic strip, Speed Bump. Grunman and Coverly talk about Speed Bump, Coverly's time on a military aircraft carrier signing autographs for Marines, and the time that Coverly had to draw a cartoon live in front of an audience set to music performed by a live orchestra. That's next week on Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.